puts me in a really uncomfortable position as well. So um, I am not who you wanted to see. And, you know, I could get used to coming to visit you guys, but not on these terms. Um, He's having another attack this morning on his pancreas. And so he called me at 7.30 to come preach to you. So here am I. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. Jesse greeted me at the door. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Judd Brooks. I'm Gary's son. Uh, um, I'm a pastor at Christ Church in Brentwood. So I preached a sermon just about an hour ago and then ran over here. Um, Jesse greeted me at the door and said, are you ready? (laughs) No. I'm not. (laughs) But it was good to see him. He's my buddy. So yeah, my mom and dad are back from Michigan. They had a a wonderful time. I'm going to let him fill you in on how that went and what he was up to while he was there. Um, let me pray for, for this, for all this. Again, I'm back. Uh, what was this? A couple months ago, the same thing happened. And it was a treat. It was a gift for me. I hope it was for you as well. Tell you what, let me, I'm going to pray for my dad. Let me do that. And then, um, could I, let me just do this. Who would be willing to come and pray for your pastor? I'm going to pray for my dad. How about, who, who would be willing to come? Somebody. Yeah, would you come on up? That'd be great. Come on up. So I'm going to pray first, and then you can pray for your pastor. That'd be great. Sound good? This is Mike hot? Does this work? All right, good. Let me pray first, and then I'm Judd. Gail? Nice to see you. Thanks so much. All right, let's pray, church. <clears throat> Lord, my dad is in pain. He is frustrated. I'm frustrated for him. And so, Lord, would you um, be near? I think he's ready for some answers, and so we ask uh, for you to bring those to him. Pray now as he is uh, fighting the pain and enduring the pain that he would cling to you. We don't say that with church talk. We mean that. I pray that that's a real comfort for him. Pray that my mom and Jesse would be uh, helpful as he is hurting, and that myself and my family would as well. Thank you for the dad that he is to me. What a gift to my siblings, husband and father, and this just knocks them out, Lord, and so would you heal? Would you, would you heal? I ask that, believing in the name of Christ. Dear Lord, please be with Gary, our pastor. You know how much we need him. Mm-hmm. You know how much we need his teaching. 
his understanding, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that you have given him, benefit all of us every time we hear him speak. Please be with Jenny and help her as his main caregiver to have patience and love for him and let him feel that. Let him feel the love that we have for him and to help heal him. We believe that you can do anything, Lord, and that if you are with us, who can be against us? And no one, I'm sure, believes that more than Gary. Uh, please bring him back to us healthy and whole and heal his back so that he can be comfortable and lead us on. In his name we pray. Amen, amen. 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 Thanks, Gil. All right, so <clears throat> what I'd like to do is do what I just did. We've been in Genesis chapter, uh, we've been in Genesis. This morning we were in Genesis chapter three. I would invite you to turn to Genesis chapter three. <laughs> That's just where we happen to be, all right? So it's like, let's talk about sin, all right? Um, why not? I was actually thinking about doing something um, out of Genesis two and kind of letting you guys vote because I, I taught on, the, on Sabbath rest based on the theological precedent that God set for us out of Genesis chapter two, where he rested on the seventh day. And man, I loved preaching that sermon a few weeks ago. It was so good for my soul and for my life. And, um, and so I really wanted to preach it. And up until like a few minutes ago, I was literally going to preach it. And so I was going to let you guys kind of decide, and then I decided that Sabbath or sin, let's just, let's just talk about sin instead. And so that's what we're going to do, uh, because I believe it's um, applicable to all of us, um, because we all kind of land in that category. And so um, let's, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Um, like I said, we've, as a church, been in a, so far, I think we've spent six weeks in Genesis, um, and some of the major themes that we've seen in this book, like the main theme of Genesis uh, is a real, it's real simple, right? It's just turn to a neighbor and say, God, God, that's real. Like that's the main theme of the entirety of this book. It's not about us. It's not even fundamentally about his creation. It's about him. It's about the creator. But we see these sub-themes throughout, and even in the first two chapters, we've seen that he's a, he's a creator God. He's a creative God. He, he's a God who made all things. He's a God who loves his people. He loves us. And actually, like, not in a, um, like, we, we use this word often, is the word bless. But no one blesses like God blesses. And I mean it. Like, he is a God, and we've seen this in, in Genesis chapter one, as he's created all things, in Genesis chapter two, even like, even like him taking a break to sit back and to set this theological precedent for us to rest. Like, what a blessing that we have lost, really. Like, take some time to enjoy and delight in all that I have given you. He's a God of blessing, too. That's a sub-theme we've seen as well throughout uh, this uh, book so far. And then we get to, you know, two chapters in and we realize that um, we've kind of made a, a little bit of a mess of this. And so I want to go back and see why and how and what happened and, um, 
And I pray really that, that it's helpful and um, that it exhorts and teaches us because it promises that it, that it will if we're open to it and humble enough to receive it. So I believe this is one of the most important passages in the entirety of the Bible. And again, it's the story of the fall of the human race. And I'd like to begin just by simply making a comment that I think all of us will agree on because it doesn't take much living to see it. Even my nine-year-old, she's my oldest. We have nine, seven, and three. My nine-year-old is acutely aware and becoming more so by the night as the lights go out that there's something wrong with the world. It's not the way that it should be. And so whether you're a Christian or not, most all of us would agree that there's something not right in the world. This week, even with lunch, over lunch with a friend of mine who is not a Christian, uh, we get together every six or eight weeks, and I just almost consistently every lunch ask him, so let's talk about faith. Like, what is it again that's your biggest hang up to having faith in God in all ways boils down to this, him asking the great questions of sin and suffering and if God is good and benevolent and loving, then why, why, why? And so maybe you think that all the problems in the world boil down to lack of education or poverty, or you're convinced that the problem of this world is related to ideologies, differing ideologies. Maybe you see the world's problem as a breakdown of the family structure. Maybe you see religion itself as the primary issue in the world. But if you just pause for a second and stop blame shifting and looking out at all the externals, if you just pause and in some of your most reflective moments, we have to acknowledge that there's a problem in our hearts too, right? Like, do you ever make... um, Comments, or do you ever have those moments where something slips out of your mouth, like totally embarrasses you? I really like, no, Mm-mm. never done that. It's like the foot in mouth. Maybe it's maybe it's an outburst of anger. Maybe you say something about someone or to someone, or maybe you state like a desire that you've had, and you're like, oh, I should have not said that. That was a bad idea. And you go back typically and you apologize and you say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. And then oftentimes you go, that's not really me. Well, a question that arises out of that comment is, well, if that's not really you, then where did that come from? Maybe a a better explanation is that just as we get older, we, we begin filtering more effectively, Right? We become wiser with our words. But then we all know, like my grandparents I know, as they got even older, it's like that filter went away. <laughs> they, it's like, because why? I mean. But just because we don't say it doesn't mean it's not inside of us. In fact, this is what Jesus worked to expose over and over and over and over and over again, that you might, in fact, have a really great track record, super religious guy or gal, but I can promise you that your heart is often far from lovely. 
And so in that case, maybe, just maybe what snuck out of my mouth in that moment is in fact the best reflection of what's actually in my heart. Maybe it's the real unfiltered me. Maybe it's not the exception, but rather a reflection. Remember Brian Williams? Um, I don't know what the word, like the fallen newscaster, news anchor. Uh, is it fallen? I don't know. <laughs> Disgraced or something? I don't know. It just sounds harsh. Um, he lied, right, to a national audience on TV about, uh, I don't even remember the details, something that he said he did that he really didn't do. Uh, he was a part of something that he said, or he said he was a part of something that he wasn't really a part of. And um, now I love Brian Williams. Like around my house, it was so, like, so for years when Sarah and I first got married, she thought it was super weird because I would like record like the nightly news and it'd be like, just like rows of recordings. She's like trying to get to whatever show she wants to watch and she's got to get, and I'm like, it's B-Will. Like me and B-Will are like real close. And you're like, bum, 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 bum. That's just nostalgic and good for my heart. And when Brian Williams uh, failed, was fired. Well, I kind of stopped watching. But what happened to Brian Williams? Well, actually, what happened was this. He came back out, and he had an opportunity. And here is what he actually ended up saying. He actually ended up using these words, I misspoke. But I would argue here, if, if he were to be honest, he would actually say, I meant to say that to impress my audience to further my career and nation, my insecurities got the best of me. That's real. Andy Stanley, a pastor in Atlanta, actually points out that we like to call dumb decisions, we make mistakes. I made some mistakes in my previous marriage. I made some mistakes in my former job. But I, I would argue that the word mistake really doesn't capture the severity of an affair. The offended spouse usually doesn't think it's, it's a mistake. Your kids don't see it as a mistake. A mistake is what happens in marriage when you buy jelly instead of jam at the store. That's a mistake, right? Happens all the time. I can never remember which one she likes. I still couldn't tell you right now. Or think about this, Stanley says, sometimes we make mistakes on purpose, don't we? Don't you? Sometimes we plan our mistakes. You are probably guilty of some premeditated mistakes in your life. What do you call a mistake that you make on purpose? What's the best term to describe a mistake you make on a recurring basis? What do you call a person who plans and carries out the same mistake over and over? A serial mistaker? the church, we have a word for it. That's where the Bible offers a better explanation. It actually says that we have a disease that's a whole lot deeper than a mistake. So church, God created us perfect. We got to remember that. It lasts about 10 seconds. So Adam and Eve appear to have um, like the moral attention span of me in eighth grade math class. Like not there. 
And real quickly after that, just a few verses later, this entire thing unravels. Genesis 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. She inserts herself here, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. A little caveat here. Technically, this is adding to what God had said. God never said, neither shall you touch it. And so she's already adding here to God's words. And so just a sub point here before we get into our observations this morning, we're not gonna have any slides up in the 10 minutes I had to, we didn't get them, so... Alteration of God's word is dangerous, even deathly. Moving on, verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will in fact be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Dudes, men, guys, this is not good for us. This is a terrible verse for men. Who was with her in the Hebrew means that he was right there, elbow to elbow with his girl. Like a dummy, waiting to see what was going to happen. And who, who did God talk to about all this to begin with? Him. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they had sewn fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. So what I want to do is I want to look at four things out of this devastating story. Extremely sad story. Four things. Number one, the origin of our sin. If you want to take some notes, we're going to go back to revisit these. The origin of our sin, our innate response to sin the overwhelming result of our sin, and then the only remediation for our sin. Number one, the origin of our sin. I want you to track with this because this is pretty intriguing. Um, there are several components that make up this temptation. Is that my water? Yeah. Mm. It always feels like it takes like five minutes to drink water when you're in front of people watching you drink water. It's like, can I get you to close your eyes for a second? Like, no. <laughs> it's the longest drink ever. Um, the origin of our sin. Several components. The first is this, and that's unbelief. It's the first thing we see happen with Eve, unbelief. Like the serpent launches his offensive with these words, did God really say? Like, are you sure? 
Eve, you'd, you'd make a better Lord yourself. Nobody knows you like you know you. Only you can decide what is best for you. Friends, like in 2018, that rhetoric is strong. Like, follow your heart. It's about you and what you want and your desires and listen to no one else but you. And this initiates this unbelief in her. Oh yeah, like maybe, maybe you are right. This initiates or triggers in her what I believe to be one of the most root issues to our sin, and that's discontentment. That, that's what we see in the garden. That's like as far down as you can go when you begin to peel back the layers of what really happened there. Discontentment. This is not content with God and all that he had given them. Up until this moment, God had been the one who told them what was good. The whole creation story is God saw it and God said it was good. God saw it and God said it was good. God saw it, said it was good. Have it all. Dominion, enjoy, delight. Walk with me, talk with me, shalom. And what was the result? They did. They enjoyed it. They delighted in it. They were satisfied in it and in God alone. Where God is, there is life. We often say at Christ Church, where God is, there too we want to be. Hell is the absence of God. They knew nothing of this. And now they take upon themselves to decide what is good. For me. Because I know what's best. Discontentment with the way God made things. Pascal once wrote, life is like a man in a stagecoach barreling towards a cliff. That's it. There's no ending. There's like, but it's just, that's it. Just like a stagecoach barreling towards a cliff. That's what we see happening in this passage. See Adam and Eve barreling towards a cliff. Insanity. So on their way off the cliff, we start with unbelief, discontentment, and then comes idolatry. Romans chapter one, Paul says about this specific scene. He's referencing back thousands of years later about this specific scene in scripture that we gave to one of God's creations the glory that belongs to God. Like we exchanged that. Glory in Hebrew is weight. It is something that we elevate in importance to God's level. And so again, discontent with God and what he has given us. Can't live without it. Can't live without money. Can't live without romance. Can't live without respect or family or comfort. And we begin worshiping the created of the creator. That's idolatry. And then lastly, we see Rebellion. That's when we actually turn from God. I have it my way. Be gone. And this lust, this dissatisfaction, this discontentment, this rebellion is rooted in, I want more than you, God. In fact, I would say we can even go one step further based on this text and say, I not only want more than just you, God, I want to be more than you, God. You know, at the end of the book of Joshua, 
It's like one of my favorite like rebellion passages in all of scripture, if you can have a favorite rebellion passage. It's kind of a weird thing to be favorite, but it's powerful picture of our rebellion and how we just continuously go back to sin time and time and time again. We get real defensive and we're like, no, but I'm pretty good. No, no, watch this. So at the end of Joshua, he's on his deathbed and he's like having this interaction with the Israelites and he's going, um, like, I, I want you to serve, like, as for me in my house, like, I'm gonna serve the Lord. And everybody's like, yeah, for sure. Like, we want that too. And Joshua's like, no, but you don't because you, you're still actually, it says you're still worshiping the, the gods of your fathers, right? And so you got to put those away. And, he, and they're like, no, f- for sure, we will. We'll put them away. We, we want to we worship like you, like your kitchen sign. Like, one, like that's going to be us. Like, you know, as for me in my house, like, I want that in my kitchen too. And he's like, no, like, you don't understand. You got to put the bales away. It's almost like they're standing there holding them, like, like, we want to worship God too. And he's like, dude, like, you're holding a God. Like, put it away. And finally, Joshua's like, okay, deal. Like, let's, I'm, I'm going to die soon. I'm going to die now, actually. And I want you to continue on worshiping the one true God. They're like, awesome, deal, stamp, done. Now, two chapters into the next book, Judges, chapter two, Israel's disobedience. So they pull the, the bales back out. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. We don't have time to go through the list of Baals 2018 offers us. You know them. Second thing we see in our text is this, our innate response to sin. At the origin of it, it exists, it's real, we know it, doesn't take much to look around to see it. Number, uh, number two, our innate response to sin. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Obviously already knowing the answer. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. Does anybody know what we felt here? What do we feel? Like literally, shame for sure, but what did he literally feel? Naked. He felt naked. He was already naked, but he felt it for the first time. What do you do when you feel naked? Hide. Hide. <laughs> Some of us faster than others, like myself. I feel so uncomfortable even walking outside like to, with my shirt off to go get the trash can because the, the neighbors are going to be like this weird shirtless pastor guy is like walking around. And I just, I don't need that. So we hide. And our feeling naked is actually a picture of our insecurity. We've lost confidence in God. We don't know what that confidence feels like anymore. And so in some ways to become a Christian is to regain our confidence in God. Atheist Hitchens said, inside every human heart, whether they believe God or not, is a voice that whispers not acceptable, condemned. 
In fact, we have a multi-billion dollar industry that seeks to fix this. Ask Taylor Keen. Therapy, counselors. People come, I feel this voice, I feel this sense of unworthiness. I'm not acceptable. And so what do we do with the feeling of nakedness? We hid in several ways we hid. First, Adam hid behind the trees, which has got to be one of the dumbest scenes in the entirety of the scriptures. Like, I think about my three-year-old Lucy when we play hide-and-go-seek and she runs into the room that, like, I see her go into, number one. And then number two, she's, like, under the bed, but her feet are still hanging out. And I got to pretend like it's, like, fun. Like, oh, where are you? Um... And then she like tells me where she is too. She's like, hey, I'm here. Um, That's what this scene is like. Dumbo, Adam, thinking he can hide from God. It's extremely sad. To the trees. (laughs) Sorry. It's just a funny picture. Um, So, in what ways do we hide from God? Number one, by not being honest about our sin, by not being real about our sin, by not confessing our sin. We hide from God that way, or we attempt to hide from God that way. It's just as silly as hiding in the trees. What's the phrase? Um, you got to get naked to get clean, you got to bear all. Lord, here I am. So we hide by not being honest about our sin and two, by blame shifting. We see both of these things in this story. It was a difficult time for me. What can I say? Think of all the stress I was under. You really blame me? My wife was impossible to live with. You don't know. Thirdly, the overwhelming result of our sin to the woman, verse 16, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And so yes, watch this, childbirth will hurt. Like women, goodness, crazy respect to all of you for like post-fallen world baby making. Like that's ridiculous. Like why you do it, I don't know. But I mean, I do know, but it's crazy. Like, I would not. I don't think I would. I don't know. But that's nuts. Pain for sure. But I think there's something more going on here. I would actually argue that this text is actually like a metaphor for all of life being painful. Because what does childbearing represent? Say it with me. Say it to a neighbor. That's life. Go ahead and say it. Life. Say it to a neighbor. It's cool. Life. Represents life. And so in some, in some ways, all of life is going to be painful at times. Like, certainly you will have shalom moments. You'll have glimpses of the garden. Even in the pain, hopefully my dad is experiencing this even now, you'll be able to, to rejoice in God, but creation is still groaning. We also see relational conflict as a result. He talks about the woman's difficulty in relating to the man. But I also think that even this picture is symptomatic of something bigger. Because in the very next chapter, 
Cain is going to get jealous of his brother and he's going to kill him, Abel. Why? One of my commentaries, track with me here, says this. The fruit is a powerful statement. The fruit of idolatry is constant unhappiness, which leads to hatred and conflict. Augustine said that the hatred and conflict are like smoke from the fires of idolatry. Hatred and conflict are the smoke from the fires of idolatry. For example, like if you are someone who believes that romance is necessary to make you happy or you get your worth from it, then then you may at times loathe when you don't have it. Or when someone else around you finds it and you don't, you may in fact feel what? Angry. And so you show me any area of hate, worry, despair, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, and I'll show you an idol. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. His name is Adam, Adama, it's my middle name, Dirt. So what does all this mean? From dust we come to dust we return. This is, have been God's promise, right? He said it. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. But what's crazy here is that they didn't drop dead right away, did they? No, they began dying. Like I walk with my kids at night and we'll bring a flashlight and at first the flashlight is powerful and it's on and it's working and it provides light for us. And towards the end, if the batteries were weak, it may slowly begin to die. That's our lives. Our bodies And the earth will decay. Even worse, our hearts get all out of order. Author Dorothy Sayers has said that sin is disordered loves. That's what sin disease is. Disordered loves. Our hearts are out of order. So, Thanks be to God, he sent us Jesus. Not necessarily, we're not gonna get to like the atoning part yet, but as a real example. So watch this. He gives us a picture of what it looks like and what God intended for us to live like fully healthy, fully alive, fully sinless lives. He surrendered to the Father's will that when God told him to go to a cross, even though he didn't deserve it, he went. He's so loving that from the cross, Father, forgive them. So pure, never entertained a hateful thought. So humble that when the disciples' feet were nasty, he washed them. 
That's how we were supposed to be. And he even said, unless you are perfect as I am perfect, you'll never enter my kingdom. Moving on, verse 23, and the, Lord said, and, the, and the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. By church far, saddest passage verse found in all of Scripture relating to humanity. You know why? Eternal loss of God's presence. We lost the presence of God with no way back in and of ourselves. If you know much about Reformed theology, this is why I'm Reformed. We're stuck. My commentary says, to see him again would be our death. This was the greatest of all tragedies. We lost relationship to our father, our companion, our best friend, our shepherd, the one who makes life complete, our source of life. Nothing would ever be complete again. Nothing would ever make sense again. Now, in many other stories, that's it. But as Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the kids' picture Bible, not in this story, Number four, the only remediation for our sin. Like, this is real interesting. This is the turning point of the entirety of the Bible, number one. But in fact, this scene is so shocking that even Peter said that the angels were bewildered. Like, what? What are you, what are you doing? You're, why aren't they dead yet? Back in verse 9, chapter 3, God came looking for the man. God called out, Adam, where are you? We're about to wrap it up here, but I want, I want this to hit home. What they expected was for him to destroy them. That's why they hid. That's why you hide. It's also why you try and please God with your works because you think somehow it's going to appease him. But instead, he came searching for his lost son. Gotta believe he was heartbroken over the sin of his son. And when God finds him, he actually makes him a promise. Here it is. To the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Church is the promise of Christ. You know anything about prophetic scripture? This is where we see Christ emerge powerful, victorious, crushing the head of the serpent. And actually, in fact, every story in the Bible here thereafter 
would flow out of this promise that Jesus would come. So it doesn't take long for us to mess things up, and it for sure doesn't take long for God to go, that's okay, I got this. Romans 5.14 tells us that a second version of Adam, a truer and better Adam, would come. And so just, church, when it appeared that the serpent had won, God was actually crushing his head by promising to send Jesus, God in the flesh, to redeem by putting an end to death once and for all. What guilt do you carry? Stop it. I think I said this last time. It's not yours to carry. What shame do you, what tree are you hiding behind and why? You know, believe this promise. And then in verse 21, this is beautiful to wrap things up. God takes an animal and kills it and uses the skin to cover their nakedness. Isn't that cool? Not only promises Christ, but in the moment warms and comforts them. Despite their trampling on his glory. This actually, this picture points towards the death of Jesus where his death, where it talks about clothed in, what's the word? Righteousness. That he would not only come for us, but that he would clothe us in his perfection, in his goodness, in his mercy, despite our inabilities our imperfections, our sin. Puritan Richard Sibbs wrote, I'm gonna get an amen for this. This is so good from this Puritan. Listen to this. Thank God there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Amen. And so the requirement to receive this mercy is real simple. So let's not mess it up. Real simple. Repentance and faith. Repentance means you go to Genesis 3 and you go, okay, what did he do? How did he handle things? Um, he hid and he blame shifted. Okay, so then go, okay, I want to do the opposite of that. So I want to, I don't want to hide. I want to confess. I want to open up and I don't want to blame shift. I want to receive that blame. Guilty. And then faith. Faith that God is looking for you as you hide in the garden. He's coming to find you. He's after you. He desires you. You're a mess. I'm a mess. He still wants us. The angels can't believe the opportunity we're given that God sent his son Jesus on a rescue mission for us. And so church, West Hills, um, I pray this for you just as much as Christ church. I, I, I hope and pray that we see even in these chapters that seemingly are really depressing and sad, the overwhelming mercy, graciousness, and love of our Father God. 
that while we were still sinners, Christ came looking for us. Yeah. Let me pray for us. Um, I'm excited to come. Christ Church is going to join you, uh, y'all. I was going to say y'all. I don't even know. Y'all, um, it's my sister's fault. She's in Nashville. We're going to join you guys on um, the 30th. So we're going to be here with you guys. Um, I'm so excited to worship Jesus with you. Um, and so I hope you'll welcome our people when we see you in a couple of weeks. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this text that you gave it to us so we know we have an answer to the hurt, the pain, the discontentment, the unbelief, the list goes on and on. We thank you that you revealed to us the source of all of that, but you also revealed to us and send us the solution, the answer, the hope. Pray that my brothers and sisters here would repent and believe, repent and have faith, practice this every day. May it stir our affections for you. It's the beautiful thing, God, about repentance is that it does stir our affections for you because it leads us to living water. It leads us to believe and realize we cannot do this in and of ourselves but rather cling to the promises of Christ. We pray all of these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen.